Welcome to this edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. David, you missed a good conversation uh, with Lisa Lalonde from the Century Initiative. Uh, This is an organization that was established not that long ago, in 2015, uh, as a nonpartisan nonprofit to advocate for population growth that would take Canada to 100 million by the end of the century. What do you think about that idea? Well, I'm sorry to have missed that conversation because it is a very interesting question. Of course, Canada is one of the most sparsely populated countries in the world. We have a very low population density. Uh, and so we could certainly handle 100 million population, assuming it's not all in the Toronto area. But I, I think it's important to be thinking long term like that. If you project out GDP growth of, of two, two and a half percent per year, uh, you know, you're going to need uh, uh, at least one, one, one to two percent, uh, one to one point two percent population growth to support that. Uh, uh, so I think the I think it's a very interesting target. And my issue would be the distribution of that population, as you and I have talked about in the past. If that's all going to be in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, I'm not that interested. But if it's part of a national approach to growing long-term population growth, I think it's a very interesting idea. Yeah, no, I, I think when people hear it on the surface, they think 100 million Canadians. Wow, that's a big number. But, you know, I did a little extrapolation of uh, our current growth rate, which has been around a 1% in Canada for 60 years. It's, you know, if we were only to continue at that growth rate in Canada, we would be, I think, around 86 million. So to get, you know, to 100 million, it's not that, you know, uh, unfeasible. Uh, and in fact, I think that the actual percentage increase that you'd have to achieve is something like 1.2, 1.3% a year. So it's not a big additional uh, growth. And of course, you know, we've taken in over 400,000 immigrants this year on a population of 38.5 million. So we're already over 1%. So it's not, uh, it's not impossible for us to meet that. And there are there are some challenges that go with that, as you know. You mentioned one really, really important one, and that is distribution. You know, we cannot have all the immigrants ending up in three three large urban areas in Canada. We're starting to see that it's possible for this region to attract immigrants in big numbers. But even in this region, they're confined to a couple of urban areas. And so the distribution is a big, a big challenge. And the other one, of course, is housing. You know, the ability to keep up uh, with the supply of housing when you have that many new people coming to the country has already shown to be challenging for Canada, hasn't it? Yeah, it absolutely has. Um, but you're right. We've already seen growth spurts. And now we have folks like the uh, uh, CAO of the of the Halifax municipality talking about that community potentially being a million population by 2060. Although I would say, and you and I have talked about this before, the the public case for immigration and population growth now is strong, right? We have an aging population. We need to make sure we have enough people to meet workforce demand and, and, and pay the taxes to, pay, to cover public services. But as you've said before, when you're talking about something this large and this long term, it's a different case. So I don't know if you've thought that through that much, but what, what is, I, I understand the case for maybe 2 million people in Nova Scotia I don't know by the I don't know by 2060 or something but what's the case for 5 million people 
in Nova Scotia by 2100. And I don't think that question has been answered. I think people are potentially worried that you get into very large urban centers with, with crime and congestion and all the other challenges that you see in some of the large urban centers. So I don't know if we've if we have to have the, we need to have that conversation nationally about why would we need that much population by 2100. The good thing about this organization is that it, it, it's taking a, a long-term strategic view of uh, what our population needs are, you know, granted over 80 years. But I'm reminded of an interesting story. You probably have heard this story, but uh, I did a fair amount of work over the years with J.D. Irving and... Um, I'm not sure uh, which of the Irvings told me this, but he said that uh, Casey Irving had a 100-year view of the forestry industry. He knew that he had to look that far ahead to ensure the sustainability of that business and knowing full well that it was well beyond his lifetime. And this is a, I think this is a similar case. Like We need to have a, a big conversation, a full discussion about you know where do we want to be by the end of this century. Maybe that's too far away from most people, but, you know, I think uh, having having an organization pushing um, for that kind of strategic view, I think is helpful uh, for our country and for our region, I think, as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the last 80 years weren't as good to this region, at least in terms of population and economic growth. So, you know, if we're thinking longer term now and thinking about more sustained growth moving forward, uh, I, I see nothing but good there. I, although I will say there's, you know, the idea of having 100,000 Canadians is a good idea. Uh, although, you know, people talk about that would require a lot of immigration. You insinuated that earlier. But the reality is that a lot of that population growth will, will come from second generation and, and then third generation. Uh, because when you attract a young generation of, of immigrants, they have their families here and they drive a natural population growth that we saw here, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago. So you're going to get that baby boom again. And so there's a virtuous cycle from attracting a, a, a younger population. So it's a combination of immigrants and the fact that these young folks moving in are going to have families and boost the the birth rate moving forward. So I, I, I think this is, a you know, it's a great conversation. I'm, I'm, I'm sure the listeners are going to enjoy uh, your conversation with, with Lisa. And one other thing, just before we move into that conversation, you and I had a really good conversation with Daryl Bricker. Uh, and Daryl Bricker, uh, you know, has done, uh, along with John Ibbotson, uh, some really great work in his Empty Planet book, which he basically says by the man- middle of this century, Instead of the world population continuing to increase to some maybe unsustainable level, it's going to level off and start to decline. And in fact, that's already occurring in some countries like Japan and, and, and China, which is a big market for immigrants to this country. And uh, so the, the, the competition for high quality immigrants is going to get harder over time. And, you know, Canada is one of those uh, top three countries in the world, I think, in terms of places where immigrants want to go. But nonetheless, uh, you know, it's likely, and I think it's already happening, that China is trying to repatriate. The people have gone to other countries already. And so I think that that's an interesting, we have a bit of a conversation about that, Lisa. I think that that's going to be an interesting thing to watch uh, uh, over the next uh, couple of decades for sure. 
Yeah, it's a great question because China is a great example. China will shrink unless it moves to an immigrant positive position because its natural birth rate has dropped below the natural growth rate primarily from a, a, a policy, right? A one-child policy. But now, even after they've loosened that, there's still far fewer births than they need to replace themselves. So either they find some way for older women to have a lot more children, which is not really realistic, uh, or they move to an immigrant positive position and compete with us. And then the competition comes down to a battle of jurisdictions. And Canada needs to continue to be an open uh, a place where you can prosper, where you can come and work hard and create and have a great quality of life. And I think so that you're right about the competition, but that just pushes us to be that much stronger in terms of our value proposition for people wanting to move here. Yeah. And uh, just to make a, a couple of other uh, points, uh, uh, if we were to achieve this goal of 100 million, it would mean that Atlantic Canada would be somewhere between six and seven million people as a proportion of what we have today. Uh, so that's a very different Atlantic Canada, for sure. And the other thing that I think people need to understand is that if we were to achieve that goal, Canada would be by far the most multicultural country in the world. And, 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 and maybe, that, that maybe that's what Canada should be anyway, because I think that that is a really unique positioning to be open to the world. And we've done a pretty good job so far, don't you think? I do so. So uh, with that introduction, uh, here's my conversation with Lisa Lalonde, the CEO of the Century Initiative. Lisa, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Really happy to be here. Yeah, we always uh, begin by finding out a little bit about our guests. Uh, and I'd like to find out about your career path that has led you to your current role as CEO of the uh, Century Initiative. Can you tell us about that journey? Sure. I was thinking about how to actually describe my my career because I've actually worked in quite a few different sectors over the span of almost 25 years now. I started in finance um, and the work that I did there was mostly supporting you know, change management initiatives, large scale restructuring, cost cutting initiatives. And you know, when 9-11 hit, um, I made a, a conscious decision to want to do something else with my life, and um, and I sort of launched myself into the nonprofit sector, um, where I did uh, some work in the healthcare sector and spent a big majority of my time in affordable housing, um, and then venture philanthropy. Uh, and I think what became really relevant or sort of evident to me uh, working in the nonprofit sector is that. The decisions that we make, whether we're community leaders or business leaders or you know policy leaders, uh, policy makers, these decisions can have a really profound and lasting impo- impact on people's lives uh, and the communities that we live in. And so, you know, what I recognize is that we can't think about problems and their solutions in a vacuum. Uh, and you know, in my time in the nonprofit sector. Um, I, you know, truth be told, I, I've I've seen some really, really great initiatives, phenomenal impact, you know, tremendous impact, but I've also been a part of some failures as well. And when this happened, I asked myself, you know, in these cases, if we knew what worked, if we had evidence of what worked, why didn't we use it? Uh, you know, what did we miss? What factors did we overlook? Did we consider the bigger picture? Did we get lost in the in the narrow details of an issue? 
you know, this led me, uh, these questions led me to work in policy. And so prior to coming to uh, the Century Initiative, I actually led the not-for-profit research hub at the Mowat Center, Mowat NFP, which is part of the Monk School at the University of Toronto. And uh, we did a lot of work related to sort of structural, foundational, and uh, systemic issues impacting the nonprofit sector. But I think, you know, when people ask me, you know, what was, what did I really work on or what did I really learn? What were my big takeaways? Um, and then how did that connect to Century Initiative? Um, and it was this, this idea of unpacking the concept of impact. So, you know, who gets to decide what an impact is? How is that negotiated? Who's at the table when these decisions are being made? And I, you know, the question we asked was if we started, if we tackled problems starting with the impact that we wanted to achieve in mind, and then we worked backwards from there, you know, what kind of systems would we need? What kind of legislation, regulation, data, funding mechanisms would we need to support that change and deliver that impact? Um, and this requires a specific uh, systems level type of thinking and planning, um, which is, I, which is, I think, exactly what is needed to advance the work and the mission of Century Initiative. So that sort of is the connecting thread to how I landed uh, in the role as CEO of Century Initiative. So Century Initiative um, has a bold provocation and we, you know, I definitely get a lot of attention when, when I'm talking about, you know, advocating for a population of 100 million by 2100. And so in that way, our work is simple it's a, you know, we're advocating for 100 million people by 2100. But on the other hand, it's also very complex. And I wish this part of our mission got a lot more attention. Um, because it is really about creating the conditions to grow Canada's population. Um, and in doing so, ensure that we have a prosperous, uh, sustainable future for all Canadians. The uh, Century Initiative was founded, I believe, in 2015. Uh, can you tell us about the genesis behind the founding of the organization? How did it actually get started? Century Initiative was founded by a group of business leaders. Um, they were really passionate and concerned about uh, Canada's future. Uh, they saw the understood the demographic changes that were underway in the country, uh, and uh, they decided they that something needed to be done. And so, uh, you know, I've, you've talked about this on your podcast a little bit, but I, on your other podcast, but I think it's worth mentioning because uh, it is at the heart of why Century Initiative was founded. Um, but, you know, our population is aging, we're having fewer children, and our workforce is shrinking. Uh, these are our realities uh, that we're facing, and the pandemic uh, has made that uh, even worse. So in the next 15 years, uh, seniors are expected to make up approximately 25% of our population. And um, by uh, and Statistics Canada estimates that by 2068, uh, the number of dependents for every 100 Canadians could be more than 70. So, um, and at the same time, our fertility rates are tanking. Uh, and, you know, StatsCan reported that our birth rate was at the lowest level in 100 years because of the pandemic. So when you combine these statistics, it points to a really bleak future for the country. Uh, and if these trends continue, then our economy is going to suffer and we will not be able to afford, you know, the cherished social, uh, the cherished social safety net programs that we that we cherish, we hold dear. We won't be able to afford the infrastructure investments that we need um, and uh, it will affect our quality of life down the road. So, you know, 
the founders saw that in order to, you know, have a prosperous future, uh, we needed to be supporting long-term thinking and planning in multiple areas to support growth. Um, and, uh, and so they established Century Initiative as a means to advocate for population growth um, and, the, and the conditions for it to be successful. Uh, if I just want to say this, because if a founder yeah. was here, they would say yeah. this, uh, and one of this was part of their discussions when they joined. And you know, Sir, Sir Wilfrid Laurier once said that the twenty first, the twentieth century would be the century of Canada and Canadian development. But you know, many would argue that that vision, that goal, that bold vision for Canada was never realized. Um, and we believe that we have the opportunity now to seize the moment, to set bold goals, and to be example of others around the world. Now, it's our understanding that the Century Initiative is a nonpartisan organization that has an independent board of directors. Can you tell us a little bit about your broad, uh, the broad goals of the organization beyond advocating for a population growth of 100 million by the end of the century? So Century's vision is a Canada that thinks and plans not just for today, but actually for tomorrow and future generations. Uh, we know that this kind of prosperity goal takes planning. It's not going to happen overnight. Uh, and as I mentioned, you know, we have a pretty bold goal uh, of 100 million by 2100, 100 million people by 2100. But we know that uh, that that path to population growth is more about solving for demographics it's um, it's a hopeful, expansive vision for the country. Uh, it's a goal of being bigger and broader and bolder than we are. And to achieve this vision, we know that we must grow well into the future. Uh, and that means uh, making sure that the benefits of growth are shared by everyone who calls Canada home. So people who are already here and those who actually want to join us. So, so that means that in addition to advocating for increasing our population, primarily through immigration, uh, it, we need the infrastructure to accommodate a larger population. Bigger is not better unless we can accommodate this growth. Um, and that means investing in like road, roads, bridges, our healthcare system, affordable housing, uh, it also means investing in employment and entrepreneurship programs, education and early childhood support. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of women stepping out of the workforce as a result of the pandemic, which is a significant issue. Um, you know, a, a affordable, accessible, high quality childcare can, you know, help people, help families choose, make the decision to have more children, but also uh, keep women and uh, keep women in the workforce. Uh, and it means skills training for people uh, for the jobs of today and tomorrow. So, um, so we advocate for the population growth, but also the conditions for growth, uh, like I mentioned. And another key piece that we look at uh, and we focus on is maintaining public support for immigration. We have, uh, Canadians generally have, uh, have uh, faith in the immigration system. They support, uh, there's high public opinion for immigration in the country, but we can't take that for granted. Uh, you know, we're seeing a rise in nationalism uh, and populism in other parts of the world. Um, and I think that, you know, we need to recognize that, uh, that that could change in Canada and immigration, you know, must continue to be a nonpartisan issue in this country. Uh, your organization appears mainly volunteer driven, I think. Uh, maybe we can just talk a little bit about the structure uh, a sure. little bit. Uh, obviously, you have an executive leadership team. Uh, as well as a council of 
champions and a, and I guess an expert panel. Can you just talk about each of those a, a little bit to give our, our listeners a better idea of how your organization works? Sure. Um, we are a national registered charity and, um, you know, as a charity, our board, our committees, uh, they're all volunteer driven. So I am a paid uh, staff member as CEO. Um, the board, the panel, uh, the council, they consist of prominent business leaders, uh, practitioners, academics uh, from different parts of the country. Uh, they have, uh, they all bring diverse perspectives, uh, different subject matter expertise. Uh, we sought them out uh, for their expertise and their perspectives in uh, all of the areas that CI focuses on. So I didn't mention this before, but we have five areas that that uh, that are priority areas for us. Immigration, obviously, is one of them innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, education and skills development, support for children and families, infrastructure and environment. So we're still growing the council. We, we I think we have four people on it net right now. Um, and also we're looking to expand the expert panel a little bit to, to make sure that we have the right level of engagement and uh, representation. So uh, I don't think we're doing a good job necessarily on having enough representation in Atlantic Canada, for example. So that's yeah. kind of always <laughs> the case for us. I'm a, we're kind of a bit of an afterthought in the national scene, I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, it's not going to be with Century Initiative. So <laughs> the, uh, the, hear. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so what they do, just to answer your question, um, they, they help us, they give us insight on national trends uh, as they relate to our strategic priorities. Um, they provide advice on our annual agenda setting, our programming, our research activities. Our goal at Centre Initiative is not to duplicate the work of others because there's some really great organizations out there already tackling issues of affordable housing or uh, even issues related to immigration. Um, or childcare. Our role, our goal is to amplify the good work of others, uh, identify areas where we will add the most value. Um, and uh, and really, really, we really get that guidance from this governance structure through our board and committees that we've developed. Uh, how's your organization funded? I know you're a charity, but you must have uh, some some large supporters of this initiative, do you? So our funding comes from a combination, from donations and from a combination of grants from personal family foundations, corporations, as well as individuals uh, who care about Canada's future and like the work that we're doing and want to support it. Uh, we get asked this all the time, so we don't, uh, we don't have or accept government funding uh, and um we are actively seeking funding. So, you know, after this podcast, if people love it and they are really into our mission, they could check out our website and donate online if they, if they're, if they're so inclined. Okay. That's great. Oh no, of course, of course. Um, uh, now you, I think you've already talked about the main rationale for establishing the goal of a hundred million. And, and that is really to deal with the demographic uh, aging population, the issue around labor force for sure. And, uh, you know, you've already implied that one of the key benefits for Canadians in general is to have the ability to continue to afford to provide the um, services that Canadians have come to expect, I guess. Are there are there specific benefits that Canadians should be thinking about with this goal for themselves uh, beyond this? Let's keep health care and, and those sort of things. Are there other what are the other advantages of growing uh, our population to this size? Well, a bigger population would give us a dynamic and robust domestic market. 
with more global talent to drive innovation and fill new jobs. Um, you know, particularly in in areas uh, that are going to re- be required for the future, like greener, you know, greener uh, building technologies and energy use. We will have the tax base to fund critical social services. Um, I think in small and medium-sized cities, population growth means stronger local economies and improve access to services and supports. And it means economic growth. So when you higher immigration levels, so we did this modeling with the Conference Board of Canada uh, in a report that we released last year, but it showed that higher immigration levels would increase GDP by 67 billion and federal revenues by 15.5 billion annually by 2040. And these, these were off of the, the immigration level targets that were established in, in the fall of 2020. Um, right. And, uh, and I think, you know, a larger population could also mean a more forceful voice on the world stage. And I think that's something often Canadians don't really think about. And we're actually, we're small. We're a very small country and we're smack in between, for example, uh, China and the United States. Uh, and uh, the geopolitical context is changing. You know, if we, if we get this, a bigger, bolder Canada right, if we do population growth and we do it well, we are going to be in a better position to defend our, our economic, our environmental and our national security interests. Um, and also we're going to be in a better position to preserve our values as a de- democratic nation, who we are as Canadians. We can be a counter to the growing forces of nationalism and populism in the world. You know, we're seeing it rise in other places um, and we've been relatively insulated here. And we can have greater control over our social and economic destiny. And why wouldn't we want that? So, um, so for me, when I talk about the benefits of growth, you know, I talk about economic growth. I talk about affordability of our programs. You know, our ability to invest in the right infrastructure for growth. You know, growing growing population through immigration also means that it's going to contribute to our social and cultural the cultural fabric of our lives of our communities. These are all really important. But another element I always try to emphasize is this, you know, we, we have a role that we can play on the world stage. And if we're bigger, we can be better at that. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a really interesting perspective for sure. Uh, when, when the goal of 100 million was originally established, and I guess it wasn't that long ago, it was probably shortly after the organization or maybe just before the organization was founded in 2015, the population had already been going at a relatively steady rate of about 1% for 60 years. It's amazing. Like if you look at the population growth uh, chart for Canada, it's a nice steady incline. There's, uh, you know, I don't know who organized it. It's perfect in many ways. In the early days, the growth was fueled obviously by a robust uh, birth rate in Canada that has steadily declined over the years. And now the population is growing mainly as a result of immigration. The number of immigrants at the time the goal was established was uh, was quite a bit lower than it is today. Now, uh, based on recent changes uh, by the federal government, we're, we're you know we're up to four hundred thousand uh, immigrants coming to Canada. Uh, this has probably made the objective a little easier to achieve, has it not? Yes, and so you know, provided the immigration targets that were set in the fall of twenty twenty are met. Uh, reaching the goal, our goal of 100 million people by 2100 is actually possible. Um, I should point out, though, that uh, the new immigration level target, like planning, is is set to be released in February. So, so, uh, so we're talking about 
the 2020 targets, but uh, assuming they will stay the same or grow, we are well on our way to achieving um, that target. Um, but I want to I want to reinforce something because you know when you when you throw out a number like 100 million, it, it's hard to wrap your head around, and it seems enormous. Uh, but we're actually not talking about massive leaps in our in Canada's annual targets. We're you know what we're proposing and what's laid out uh, in the the levels planning. Our regular increases over time, building off current levels. And Canada has done this before. Uh, in, uh, in 1913, immigration peaked with the arrival of 400,000 newcomers to Canada, which at the time was, I think, like 5% of the population. So our current rate, as you said, as you noted, is closer to 1%. So you know we can and must do more than 1%, um, but, uh, but it does... It, doesn't have to be this monstrous stress. It's like what we're proposing is not as ambitious as it actually sounds. Yeah. And I just want to follow up on that point because on the surface, obviously the goal of hundred million does seem quite ambitious if you're just thinking about where we are now, yeah. but if the country were to continue to grow, even at a historic rate, I calculated that the population of Canada would be around 80, 86 million, I believe by the end of the century, just doing kind of what we're doing right now. So, you know, we're talking about an extra 14 million people and, and instead of perhaps 1%, 1%, we're talking about maybe 1.4% growth yep. or something like that. I'm not, I might not have the right number. Yeah, you do. <laughs> uh, oh, okay, good. <laughs> so if, I, guess, I guess to reinforce your, your point of view, it's not yeah. a big stretch. And, no. and, I, and, and it's way, way more possible than people might initially think about because it's a big number. But the yeah. other thing is it's, it is a long ways away too. People need to recognize it's a long ways away, but you need to plan for it. And I think that that's the point that you're trying to make. Is it, is it not? Correct. We set this goal, as I said, as a provocation to spark a national conversation, uh, to start the dialogue. And through that dialogue, encourage, inspire, you know, long-term thinking and planning. So we're moving out of this planning and political cycles. But whether we achieve 100 million or 90 million or 95 million um, or 86 million, um, that's okay. We won't see that as a failure. Um, it's, it's more about, you know, what that type of planning and thinking inspires in, in what we do and how we think and how we invest and what we encourage and ask of our politicians. Uh, that's what we're really actually advocating for. Uh, so, you know, just kind of validating your, your 1.14% uh, comment, you know, we did some uh, we did some modeling with the Conference Board of Canada. It started in 2016, and then now we do it every year with them. Um, and based on the fall 2020 immigration level targets, um, you know, if we if we if we keep those if we meet those targets and, and we have gradual increases, and we combine that with better support for Canadians uh, on their choices of family size. So the an example of that is the national childcare system, the early learning and childcare system uh, commitments by the federal government that can go a long way to, to helping people, uh, you know, decide and choose and their support their decision to have children. If you combine those, um, immigration right now, as you said, is set at 1%. Um, we would like to see it closer to 1.14% as we reach the end of the decade. So uh, based on the modeling, it's achievable with year-over-year uh, -year increases. Um, and, you know, these kinds of projections are long-term. There's all sorts of, you know, intervening variables yeah. that come up. But the goal is it's it's the it's the ambition behind setting this goal uh, is what that is what we're all about. I was interested in uh, um, one of the things that I 
uh, found out about the, the Century Initiative, which envisions uh, the Canada of 2100 as being a, a nation of mega regions or inter interlocking areas with more than one center and, and typical populations of these mega centers of 5 million or more. You know, Atlanta Canada currently has 2.4 in four provinces. Uh, and even though our premier um, in Nova Scotia has set a, a goal of doubling our population, we just, we just achieved a million population, as you know, to 2 million by 2060. Uh, it seems like this leaves Atlanta Canada out of that mega that mega region idea unless you unless you just look at it as a the whole region as a mega region. Where does this so, leave Atlanta Canada? First, I want to say that uh, building a bigger bolder Canada is complex and uh, is a complex challenge, and there's no mm -hmm. single uh, response or policy that's going to get us there. Um, and you know to to achieve this economic objective, we need you know, our, I want to reinforce a Century Initiative's message is we need to see population grow in all parts of the country. So this does include increasing and intensifying uh, population in major cities. That's key, um, along with creating mega regions, as you've noticed. Um, but it also means we need to plan for smaller cities and less populated regions that are just as critical uh, to Canada's social and economic fabric. I'm from a small town in Northern Ontario, and I can tell you uh, with absolute certainty that uh, the majority of people there do not want to be associated with the Toronto mega region, for example. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, and so, you know, we ultimately we need to uh, encourage population growth across the country, uh, but we recognize the value um, and the um, the benefits that come from the development of certain mega cities as well. And so, in, at Atlantic Canada is included in this in this growth. Uh, strategy or vision that Century has. And so um, there is and will always continue to be a need to grow the workforce in Atlantic Canada, uh, particularly as the population continues to age and uh, fertility rates decline. And I think, you know, ensuring that we can attract and retain immigrants in less populated towns like my hometown uh, and communities will help respond to labor market needs. It will continue, it will contribute to the regional tax base it will encourage investment and grow the population. So, you know, over time, I think that that helps regions across the country grow, and that's good for our prosperity. Um, so, so we're all about growth across the country. Uh, the mega regions piece is just one component of that. Canada is increasingly becoming uh, a multicultural country. I guess the most multicultural country in the world, really. Uh, this is certainly the, uh, the, the case for the larger urban communities that have attracted the vast majority of immigrants to this company, uh, uh, country. We are curious about the kind of pushback you are getting to your goal. What are the arguments you're hearing among those uh, maybe who are opposing the growth uh, goal of 100 million? And, uh, and how are you countering these arguments? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Immigration can be like a really polarizing issue. Uh, especially true in, in recent years with the rise of populist and national uh, nationalist movements. Um, but, you know, I don't believe, I, I do not believe that most Canadians uh, hold xenophobic or nationalist views. And I, and I think it's unfair, um, you know, in some cases, you know, I've seen in, in public discourse, even on Twitter, you know, when people talk about pulling back on immigration, the go-to response is, well, you're anti-immigrant. 
uh, and I and I think that's unfair uh, uh, for some. I think obviously there there we have seen a rise in racism. These these uh, this is real and something that we have to address in the country. But I think um, people have legitimate concerns right now about the country's deepening housing affordability crisis, uh, the availability of quality jobs and the impact of growth on the environment. These are real issues. Um, and we agree, like the real issues there, we track them in our national scorecard on Canada's growth and prosperity. I don't think I mentioned that, but it's a it's a tool that we use uh, to that includes indicators that we've identified as necessary uh, to help us uh, create the conditions for sustainable growth. Um, and in these areas, you know, they're listed as falling behind or or in need of attention. So we what we say in my counter is yes, these are legitimate issues, um, but you know, given demographic trends, we cannot pull back on immigration at this point without terrible risks to our economic and social well-being. And we've passed the point of this being an either-or scenario. So what we say is the path of population growth through immigration must be designed specifically with a commitment to grow well. And so that means it must coincide with investments in affordable housing, in climate, Adaptation infrastructure, broadband must include investments in our roads, our bridges, and public transit. Um, so we're not just talking about population growth. So in our counter, I mean, this is what's a bit ironic for me because, you know, whenever I'm on Twitter, or I'm out there, I, I get quite a lot of feedback. And some of it, you know, people are super supportive and they get what we're trying to do. And in other cases, they see the number of 100 million and then they, they don't take time to finish the other pieces and read a little bit further in some cases on, you know, that we're also trying to support and understand and create the conditions for this growth to, to be managed, to be done well. On climate change, because environmental sustainability is, a, is one of the, the key counters, climate change isn't just about population numbers. It's about how we use resources and the choices we make. In a country that is as sparsely populated as Canada, we're forced to use really inefficient and highly polluting forms of transportation. Greater population density would allow us to make economic, uh, the economic and environmental case for using more energy efficient technologies uh, for transportation, for example. Well-planned density can support our objective of a more sustainable economy. It can contribute to reduced emissions, shorter commute times, and vibrant communities. The other point I make is that uh, building a low carbon economy requires scale. It requires innovation. It requires capital. Coping with the effects of climate change is going to be really expensive, is expensive. The cost of these shifts for both the, the, um, the public and the private sectors will be enormous. We need a strong fiscal base to meet our environmental commitments, and this depends on population growth. So as we think about these issues, I, I think the other piece that I try to reinforce is that these big, we're talking about big changes and these big changes won't happen overnight and they will definitely not happen without careful, thoughtful planning and with the input. They can't happen without the input and the support of the public. So um, I think people you need to be reassured that there will be benefits to them that the, the, what we're proposing uh, will benefit them and support them and their, their families into the future.
Well, you've already brought up an issue that I, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, let's so let's just go down that track a bit. One of the greatest obstacles to population growth is the current lack of housing, certainly, especially yeah. for yeah. affordable housing for new immigrants. Uh, the availability and affordability of housing is clearly a big issue. And in fact, just uh, in our region, it doesn't matter where you are in the urban areas or the non-urban areas, you know, housing is a problem. And, yeah. and uh, obviously uh, your organization has recognized that for sure. But is, is there any special special initiatives that, that you're focused on on the housing side that, uh, that sort of uh, support the work that you're doing? In our work, I mean, that's the, the first uh, piece that consistently comes up is, you know, if, as, if we grow and we don't have housing solutions and affordable housing, uh, what will that mean uh, for, you know, our kids or, you know, children's kids? We are facing a, a critical housing shortage and it's been made worse by the pandemic and, and you know, and it's affecting not just newcomers, but, you know, people with low and moderate income students, uh, you know, it's uh, it's difficult to find suitable, affordable housing right now. So Century Initiative, we're working to bring greater attention to the issues influencing affordable housing uh, through initiatives like the National Scorecard on Canada's Growth and Prosperity. So trying to host this national conversation, spark discussions on solutions. When we advocate for population growth in all of our pieces, whether we're doing submissions to government, uh, working with um, with sector partners, we we always insist that population growth must be accompanied uh, with critical investments in housing and infrastructure. And uh, you know, we're working in partnership with organizations like the Canadian uh, Federation of Municipalities, you know, other academics in the field in this space and practitioners to inform our efforts and work and you know we're in the process now of determining you know where can ci add the most value in this space uh, recently we had uh, daryl bricker on our podcast uh, he along with uh, john ibbotson uh, have written a really interesting book called empty planet have you read that book by the way yeah it's awesome <laughs> yeah it yeah. is awesome because it it's turned the whole uh you know, discussion about world population on its ear. And yeah. uh, they make a really compelling uh, case. Uh, and a case, by the way, that I I believe that uh, instead of continuing to grow, our population will peak by the middle of the century it, before it starts to decline in the world. And it all, by the way, there's already overwhelming evidence that this is already in process for countries like China and Japan and and a number of other countries. Um, and the declining birth rate uh, during the pandemic is not going to help that, that uh, those numbers. But what it does mean, I, I think, is, is, is something important uh, for countries like Canada that are in the business of uh, attracting people uh, to our country. It really has to do uh, with the availability of a supply of high-quality immigrants that may... Uh, by the middle of the century, may become harder to get. And the competition for high-quality immigrants will be certainly more difficult in the future than it currently is right now. Uh, uh, Has your organization given any consideration to what I call the possibility of a diminished supply and an increasingly competitive market for immigrants? Yes. (laughs) Um, Good good answer. Good answer. answer. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, first... You know, Canada must recognize 
that we're in a global race for talent. I think, you know, when we're talking to some people, it's like, oh, everyone, you know, we've got a great reputation. People want to come here. We've got lots of people already who want to come here. Um, but we are in a race for global talent. And I need, there, there needs to be a recognition of that. And while we have a solid global reputation, uh, we are considered highly attractive to top talent. Um, our global reputation ranking has been falling, uh, falling in recent years. Um, hmm. And we cannot afford complacency. So key immigration source countries uh, for Canada are looking to attract talent back. So it's not just about, you know, encouraging people to come. It's encouraging people to stay. So, um, you know, there, for example, efforts have been made in both India and China to incentivize high skilled immigrant uh, immigrants to return with China having greater levels of success in doing so. Uh, and so that's something that we need to pay attention to. Um, and that means you know, we have to understand what makes someone want to come here and then what makes them want to stay and then creating the conditions to to make that happen. So, you know, we have we actually released a, a report in December. This one focused on uh, newcomer uh, newcomer contribution to innovation and entrepreneurship, uh, where we talk about uh, some of those best strategies to support and enable newcomer entrepreneurs. So, you know, I encourage your listeners, encourage you to, to check it out. It's I think it's a really good piece. So I think uh, there's a lot that we can do to, to support uh, newcomers uh, to come here, but then also once they're here. Uh, and um, that includes uh, helping them to start and scale businesses, you know, being better at targeting and selecting immigrant innovators, having access to capital. Um, and another piece is the administrative uh, backlogs. And so I know that the, the federal government has made some announcements. They're, they're trying to tackle that. You know, I had um, a man contact me. Uh, he it was in a school, University of BC, and he was um, a postgraduate student. And I think he had been waiting 18 months for his wife uh, and family to come to Canada. And uh, he was getting so like distraught that he um, he was thinking of leaving. Um, and so there's a whole bunch of little factors that that uh, contribute to making people want to stay. Um, and so we have to pay attention to those. Um, international students, temporary entrance to Canada overall are also uh, an important contributor to our future growth um, and a key source of potential new permanent residents. Uh, so creating, growing this pathway for international students, I think provides an opportunity for Canada to increase um, retention of that talent um, through its post-secondary systems. Um, and then finally, I just say, look, well, you know, when immigrants arrive in Canada, you know, their ability to integrate, their desire to stay, it's going to be influenced by the supports that are available to them. So we need to ensure that integration policies uh, and programs are, are successful um, and available, uh, particularly, you know, you made a point about um, encouraging growth in, in uh, other communities outside of the major city centers. Uh, and I think the federal government yesterday, the day before, announced a significant uh, $35 million commitment to support uh, settlement services in, in small and rural communities. That's a great example of, of how we can, um, in, you know, contribute to improving our retention rates. Um, and then finally, it's, you know, public opinion. Uh, you know, we can be successful if, if the public is willing and accepts immigration, that can shape immigrants' attitudes and perceptions of Canada and their willingness to want to stay. A couple more questions before we finish, uh, Lisa. Uh, I just want to get back to one that, that, that you touched on already uh, earlier in, 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 the, in your last response. One of the biggest challenges facing Canada today, obviously, is 
growing um, is a growing labor shortage. A lot of that has to do with the exit from the labor force of a dis disproportionately large baby boomer cohort. I'm one of those people. Um, almost every community in Canada, big or small, rural or urban, is facing uh, these kind of shortages, but smaller urban and rural communities have not had the same access to immigrants coming to this country as the vast majority have ended up in the in Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. This is a question that I'm, you know, I'm really interested in. I mean, I mean, we've done some work with the Atlantic Pilot Program, obviously, but how do yeah. we ensure? And it's not just in Atlantic Canada, but it's in smaller communities across the country. How do we ensure? a fair distribution of immigrants beyond, beyond the three major urban communities. There's been some success in attracting and retaining economic immigrants um, and meeting local uh, labor needs through provincial programs like in pilots. I think that can be studied and scaled uh, like the provincial nominee program, the Atlantic immigration pilot, which is now permanent, uh, the rural and northern immigration pilot, and then the, the planned municipal nominee program. Um, I think not many Canadians know this, but these are really unique programs globally. And I believe Canada is the, one of the only countries that, that takes this approach. Um, and that means it includes local involvement in immigration. There's a lot that we can learn from these efforts. You know, there's some great successes, success stories, uh, you know, in, in rural Manitoba, for example, uh, immigration contributed to the labor force growth, uh, business expansion and, and manufacturing and other industries in those rural areas. Uh, and then the retention rates were so far quite high between I think it was 87 and, and 90 percent. And for those communities, um, it hit closer to home because you know, because they had that growth, they were able to keep schools open and in some cases add uh, schools and classrooms and uh, keep up with their growing youth population. Uh, you know, we, you and I have talked uh, more recently about some of the successes that have been seen in Moncton, Halifax, Charlottetown. And I think um, that case studies, uh, you know, unpacking what worked what didn't work, uh, you know, what contributed to attraction and retention, um, understanding what, you know, uh, understanding that learning and then sharing it across the country, I think can help us understand how we can encourage growth beyond the major um, urban communities. Um, you know, immigrants are, are, you know, like us, they're, in, they're incentivized to stay in cities and communities, I think, for the same reasons that Canadians uh you know, would. Um, I think shifting, you know, what's really interesting, and we proposed this uh, last year when we when we presented uh, to a House committee, that, you know, focusing, shifting from a focus on why immigrants leave to why they stay can help improve, I think, retention in smaller communities. Uh, we know that, you know, immigrants may choose to live in smaller communities if those communities are welcoming, if they have positive perceptions of the community, if they already have family and friends there. Um, if there's employment opportunities, educational opportunities, access to cultural and religious amenities, employer support, and they also may have a desire for a smaller community lifestyle. So we had suggested that the IRCC conduct an analysis of, of demographic change and labor market needs in Canada's communities, and then offer support uh, to those municipalities that could benefit most from immigration. Um, and, and we actually talked specifically about you know drawing on integration 
of lessons learned in the Atlantic region uh, to support uh, those localities. Century Initiative is uh, going to be working with Ryerson University. Uh, they're going to be doing some academic research over the next year and a half to also kind of further uh, understand what would uh, motivate uh, people to come to smaller communities and then what would keep them to stay. So I think all of that ensuring that learning will be really important to uh, to helping us uh, break the cycle of uh, you know growth just in those bigger cities. I, I don't. I want to just uh, sort of end up talking about uh, the, your national scorecard. I guess it's for growth and prosperity that you release every year, and and uh, and I believe that uh, the new one is coming out in you said February. It's actually April. April. Okay. Soon. Yeah. Uh, soon. Maybe around maybe the corner. Maybe you can give us a, some hints about what's in there. But I, I just yeah. want to find out a little bit about the scorecard and maybe what metrics you're uh, tracking with that. Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, when we talked about, when we launched Century Initiative and we had this this growth, this target, um, and we, comp- we paired it up with understanding the conditions for this growth to be, you know, to be done well, uh, we knew that we needed some kind of of product, of research product that could, you know, help us identify the indicators that um, that could that we need to track uh, and be and keep our eye on to understand how we might where we're at and where we need to go in order to achieve prosperity. And so we created this national scorecard on Canada's growth and prosperity. The one that we're working on right now has 38 indicators across, mm-hmm. I think it's six focus areas. Um, and they're aligned with our, our priority areas. So like immigration, um, you know, population growth trends, fertility rates, uh, infrastructure and environment, you know, climate resilience, uh, uh, support for children and families. Um, you know, ultimately, the scorecard is about creating a disciplined way of tracking our progress and then ensuring that we have the data and insights we need to adapt to circumstances as they change. So our view is, you know, what we don't measure, we can't manage. Um, and so it, it really takes a, a broad look at our, our country's successes, as well as where, you know, we need to pay a bit more attention. Um, and, um, you know, I think it's unique because it rarely, rarely would you see indicators on immigration uh, n- on immigration numbers combined with child well-being, climate, productivity, social progress, youth educational success and employment, like you would never hardly see those all in one place. So we, we see the scorecard as like a barometer that helps us understand you know, where we're at and where we need to go. Um, you know, our findings, our findings show uh, that, and they haven't really changed in this, this next version uh, that we're doing, but, uh, you know, our findings show that Canada is performing really well in certain areas, uh, but there's other areas where, you know, attention and urgent action is needed. And we talked about one already, uh, affordable housing. You know, we we have a strong reputation, international reputation, so we're tracking well there. And we also have a strong entrepreneurship ecosystem, um, but we need to prioritize progress on environmental sustainability. We need to spend more on business R&D, and we need to do a better job at matching immigrants to labor market needs and providing support so that they could actually flourish. So, uh, you know, when you develop this, because we want people to read it. We have like a really detailed report online uh, for those who want to dig in, but we also have a cool interactive version online that's, you know, uh, shorter and easier to navigate for those who just want to get the insights. Um, We want people to share it. And we want organizations, nonprofits, other organizations to share it 
to, and we want them to use it to inform what they're doing, to see the connections uh, to their work to other areas, uh, to see where they might be able to work together. Um, so, you know, look for it. It's going to be released on April six on April sixth this year, and uh, we're going to be releasing it at a national Globe and Mail event uh, that will be a hybrid event. So uh, we're going to try to pivot to be in person and webcast. Hopefully, that will be possible by April. Um, <laughs> and yeah, hopefully, fingers, fingers crossed. Um, so for those, we encourage uh, attendance, um, and uh, you know you can sign up for our e-newsletter uh, through our website, and uh, you know get more information about that. Just one final question, just looking ahead, uh, and what are your sort of key uh, initiatives over, for the next couple of years to help promote your goal of 100 million people by 2100? We will continue to produce uh, and distribute and advocate on issues related to the national scorecard um, as our premier piece uh, to support long-term thinking and planning. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to be undertaking uh, convening and additional research on innovation and entrepreneurship in the short term uh, within the next year. We talked about the, the National Globe and Mail event. That one will have an uh, innovation and entrepreneurship uh, lens. And so it'll be talking about how we can boost innovation and entrepreneurship um, in Canada and how we can also support uh, newcomers uh, because they do, you know, they do contribute significantly uh, to innovation and entrepreneurship in the country. You know, we're partnering with different organizations to fill some research gaps. I mentioned one of them on uh, improving regionalization efforts uh, in Canada. Um, and um, we, uh, you know, ultimately, you know, our work is about identifying, you know, where we can amplify the work of others in our spaces and in the areas we think are critical for to support growth um, and, uh, you know, commissioning research where there may be research gaps, educating the Canadian public on the benefits of immigration, why it's important to our prosperity, maintaining public support of our work. Um, so, you know, we want people to follow us, to support us, and to inform our work. And so I, I encourage your listeners to uh, to keep in touch with us. Um, and, uh, you know, this is this kind of work uh, is about bringing everyone on board, uh, al aligning with this greater vision that we have for the country. Well, uh, Lisa, it's been a great pleasure having you on our podcast to learn about the Century Initiative. I, 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 I for one, love the bold, ambitious goal that you have set. I love the fact that you're provoking um, thought on this important issue, and I wish you well uh, in your work. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to share more about our organization. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.